What a cool button, though. Hi, this is Roberta Fallon, and I'm here this morning at the galleries at Moore Radio Station, TGMR Radio, um, live on Mixler.com, and if you want to listen in. And I'm here with Jody Throckmorton this morning. Uh, Jody is the curator of contemporary art at Pennsylvania Academy of the Fine Arts. Morning, Jody. Hello. Thank you for having me. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for being here. Yeah. So you've been in PAFA, you've been in Philadelphia now because you moved here from out of town mm -hmm. since November 2014, roughly? I have. Mm -hmm. Cool. Welcome. You, you're still a newbie, mm -hmm. I guess, by most of our standards. Mm -hmm. And you've been doing some really exciting shows. And so I, today I want to talk about, you're welcome, I want to thank you. I want to talk about what's coming up for you, what's currently in the Morris Gallery, because you're doing the Morris Gallery now, right? Mm -hmm. That's under your umbrella. Yes as curator. Um, so let's start there, and then we'll wander around, and then we'll ask you about your childhood and your <laughs> Good. deep, dark secrets. Great. But we'll end on that note. So this morning, let's talk about what's in the Morris Gallery. There's Fernando Orellana. Orellana. Yes, that's correct. Mm -hmm. Okay, and he's doing things that are, well, talk about it a little bit. Right, right. Well, just to go back just a little bit, um, the Morris Gallery was a program that was at, that had a long history at PAFA. It started in 1978, and it's had amazing local artists. It has it had shows with Robert Ryman, Leila Lee. Uh, lots of great artists have come through that program. And when the Academy purchased the uh, wonderful Bill Viola piece, which is really incredible, um, it went on Morris Gallery went on ice for a bit. And then when I came back, and Harry Philbrick started as director, we decided to bring the program back as a really great spot for contemporary art. And so what I really want to do is commission artists to make new work in that gallery. And that's, we're building to that and we're starting to get, get there. And Fernando's project is a great example of that. We were able to commission him to take some of our artifacts that belong to Thomas Aikens and make a ghost machine with many of those objects. And it all started for me because I was thinking about what it means to be the contemporary curator at a 200, over 200-year-old 200 institution um, at, and at an institution with such an incredible early historic American collection and the pressure of that. How do you buy the next you know, Gilbert Stuart, George Washington painting? And so I felt like there's been a lot of um, dealing with the Academy's ghosts a little bit. And so I, this is the first and actually only time that I've Googled like, you know, artists and ghost to see what came up because I, I wanted something. I wanted an artist that was dealing with that. And oddly enough, Fernando Oriana popped up on, 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 a, on, an, on an art blog. And I was reading about the, his work, learned he was based in Troy. I happened to be going to upstate New York that weekend. And I thought, wow, this might be meant to be. So we did a studio visit. And I went to a studio, and it was filled with these ghost machines that he makes. So he takes objects that he finds at estate sales often um, that once belonged to people that are now deceased. So for example, um, one that I remember is a recipe box that belonged to a woman. And he created a robot that when triggered by electromagnetic waves, temperature, or infrared, infrared fluctuations, it operated the recipe box. So the recipe box opened, opened and there was music. 
And so you can imagine being in a room filled with these. It was creepy when they started to go off because you started to think about it. It was a way of making the ghosts present in the room. And so I talked to Fernando about doing a project. He came to Philadelphia and visited. He walked through our vaults and the collection and started to realize the presence of Thomas Aikens at PAFA. And um, we worked very closely with our conservator and registrars. Um, I'm very grateful to them because they didn't say, no, are you crazy? Um, but he chose four of Thomas Aiken's artifacts. We have a prop chair that he used in many of his paintings. We have um, a, his beautiful paint box that has this carved E on the top. Um, and then um, his palette that also, interestingly enough, was used by his wife after he passed away. So there's an interesting layer there. Um, and then one of his paint brushes as well. So the idea is that Thomas Aikens could come back and use some of his objects to draw. <laughs> um, and we have a model. We have a live nude model half the time in the afternoons in the gallery. <laughs> so I have to go back to you Googled ghost and artist mm -hmm. because it would never occur to me that there were artists working with ghosts. So that's right outside my box. Mm -hmm. But clearly not outside yours. You had an idea here, and you found the guy. Um, yeah. we, I saw him speak at the opening, and oh, yeah. he calls himself a roboticist. Yeah. But he is an artist, right? Absolutely. Well, and, and one of the things that was interesting, I mean, I, you know, I was in Silicon Valley at the San Jose Museum of Art for, for I think I was there for eight years. I'm trying to remember now. But... Um, so new media art is something that I'm really interested in and, and really comfortable with, and the museum collected the work quite frequently, and, and we were really um, working to make sure, you know, sort of how do you take care of new media art, and how do you show it to the public, and, and, you know, are they engaged with it? What does it mean? And so I look at what he does, and when you learn that each of those machines, that he makes those all himself. There's no, he's not hiring those things out. He's he making. He doesn't have a laboratory. He doesn't. And he's actually a professor at, at Tro, in Troy um, in New Media Arts. So he's making all those objects. So there's a great amount of craft to that in art. And, and oddly enough, the ghost machines. Um, he's the biggest skeptic about this. I'm much more of a, I want to believe much more than he does, maybe. So let's talk about that skepticism yeah. because he talks about the electromagnetic fields as you said yeah. and other things coming into play what did he say about the chair rotating yeah if there was a paranormal event um but it's kind of wink wink nod nod it isn't is it? it's very tongue-in-cheek so he's talking about ghosts metaphorically yeah. in a way. Absolutely. And if you do think about Thomas Aikens, he's got a huge metaphorical mm. footprint mm -hmm. at PAFA, oh, right? Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. The it's it's difficult sometimes to to um, discern fact from fiction with Thomas Aikens at PAFA because everyone has different stories. You know, you have to go back to the trusted histories that have been written, but but you you hear these great stories from professors and and all speculation about oh in this room he did this or you know what exactly happened with why he got fired. Um, well, and history is just a story told by someone is. anyway. It is. And we have, we have a great painting in the... I've been trying to install the lobby around the Morris Gallery with things that relate to what's happening in the Morris Gallery. So we installed some grisaille paintings that are scenes from historic scenes from the Academy that are quite beautiful. The cadaver dissections that everyone talks about and some life drawing classes. But then there's also a painting of Harrison Morris, who the Morris Gallery is named after, done by Thomas Aikens. And we placed it so that Harrison is looking right in the Morris Gallery. 
And at least, you know, I hope someone from PAF is going to hear this and say I'm wrong. But the story that I've heard about the painting is that the, the Academy commissioned Aikens to make this portrait of Harrison Morris, who was the first professional director of the Academy, as a way of repairing the relationship with Aikens. And I think Harrison Morris en ended up being rather grumpy after the painting because he thought that Aikens had posed him in a way that, you know, wasn't very comfortable. But it's a way of further provoking maybe Aikens to come back and, you know, this is a space that belong that's named after Harrison Morris. And so there's all sorts of interesting weavings. But, but for Fernando, it actually started out as a design challenge. Hmm. The idea was, and maybe that ties back into his sort of roboticist nature. How do you, how do you teach someone to operate a machine, i.e. a ghost, that has no way to learn, or maybe doesn't have a way to learn, has no way of touching or moving things? So how do you, you know, it's the same way that we think that they, that the people think about maybe the iPhone. How we, how do we learn to operate the iPhone? Well, we have capabilities to do that, whereas a ghost maybe doesn't. We have Wikipedia. And right. a ghost could probably go to Wikipedia yeah, you're and figure right. it out, too. Yeah, so. yeah. You never know. <laughs> so. so let's talk, since um, you mentioned about the nude model in the gallery, yes. I think that's a first for PAFA, probably, to have it on public display. I think so. I, I heard something about one, an exhibition that they did in historic art where they brought someone out at least I don't think it was part of the exhibit, but maybe it's part of a public program or something. Right. But it's it's such a huge part of the Academy's history. It is. And so what's happening in the in the exhibition is that we have um, from one to five Tuesday through Sunday, and then from two to eight p.m. on Wednesday because we're open late on Wednesday nights. Um, there is a nude model in the gallery so that Thomas Aikens can come back and draw from a live model from the dead. And so the model's there for Thomas Aikens. He's not there for the vi they're not there for the visitors, but they um, Fernando has scripted a series of poses that Aikens used in his photographs and his paintings, and given the models a guide. So they do they they hold a pose for twenty minutes, and then they take a break. Regardless of who's in the gallery, you may walk in and they're on a break, and that's fine because they're not here for you. They're there for Thomas Aikens, and then they come back on. So really, it's. The models seem to be doing very well with it. I'm not sure I could, because they're holding these poses for 20 minutes and then off, and for four hours, it's a, it's a long performance. Yeah. yeah. Um, and some are models that the Academy uses in their classrooms, but others are performance artists, and um, uh, even one person that had never done nude modeling before, but that applied and was interested. And so um, it's really an exciting thing. And so far, the response has been really great. Has it? Yeah. Well, it strikes me that it's kind of deinstitutionalizing the mm. school part Absolutely. of the academy. Yeah. Because a lot of people, I'm not sure if they know that the academy is both a museum and a school. Mm -hmm. And so, as you said, the nude model for figure drawing classes is such a part of the history of the institution, even up to the present. Absolutely. That, to put that aspect into the gallery reinforces that you are an educational institution as yeah. not that all museums are not that at their core, but I mean, you really teach classes. Yeah, the student body is you know a big part of what we do and I'm hoping that they'll come in and take advantage of the model and draw because it's- Oh, they're invited to do that? They are, they Could are. the public do that too? Absolutely, absolutely come in with, I mean, we're not letting people come in with clay, <laughs> but, but you're welcome to come in with pencil and paper and, and sketch because 
You know, those, that's one of the reasons. Take a class with Thomas Aikens is what I keep telling the students, and they sort of roll their eyes, I'm sure. But I think it's kind of an interesting idea. I think that's a performance. Yeah, Someone I think so, really too. should really organize that. I hope so. I think some of the professors at PAFA, you know, we've been talking, so hopefully. Cool. Um, but it's a, you know, there's so much discussion around arts education right now. And um, what happens, you know, a lot of schools aren't necessarily bringing in those nude models anymore. Or, you know, we have this glorious, glorious cast hall with all these 19th century, early 19th century in some cases, plaster casts of Greek and Roman sculptures, which it's just a magical place. It's out of time, really. And oddly enough, Aikens didn't like that cast hall. Hmm. He felt like people should be drawing from a nude model, drawing from life. So, but it's still very much a part of the academy tradition. And you'll meet some people that say that it's completely useless to learn to draw from the body today, and others that think, wow, this is something that's really special that's happening at PAFA that doesn't happen at, at a lot of other schools. So it's, it's a, it's that, that's exactly it with the project. It was a way to make all that public. And Fernando um, spent a lot of time going into the classroom and um, with like Al Gurry and some of our well-known professors. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that he noticed was that when you walk into the classroom and that model comes in in the robe, all of a sudden everyone's quiet and it takes on a different energy and there's really focus in the room. So he realized how important, how sacred this, this is at the academy. So it's, it's, it's interesting. We're trying to recreate some of that. That's very cool. Yeah. Well, um, I want to bring up the word clay because mm. you mentioned that people can't bring their clay into right. the Morris Gallery. Yeah. But you do have a clay piece coming up soon with we this do. very interesting Canadian artist by the name of Castles. We do. Mm -hmm. So do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah. Um, Castles, originally, we have, we have a Thomas Aikens photography exhibition that's opening soon, in October, actually. And the idea was um, to think about a contemporary artist that could, in some ways, connect to what Thomas Aikens was doing with photography. So I was thinking about artists that are pushing the limits of their medium because Thomas Aikens was really pretty cutting edge with what he was doing with photography and painting. Um, but also he was, he was, I'm not sure if revolutionary is the word, but, but pushing the limits of, of certainly at the academy and in greater society about thinking about gender and sexuality in the body. So I thought of an artist that I'd, I'd run into Castle's performances um, and photography a few times. And what we're showing at PAFA, at PAFA is a project that Castle's did called Becoming an Image, um, originally commissioned by the One Archive in um, Los Angeles, which is the first LGBT um, archive in the United States, as I understand it. What's so it called again? The One Archive. The One. And yeah, it's just uh, one. And um, so Castles was commissioned to do this piece thinking about the stories that are missing from this archive. And one of those stories is the transgender experience in history. And Castles is gender nonconforming. And a lot of the work is about um, the changing body. Um, Castles really, really um, is in the, in the lines of like Chris Burden and any of those artists that really push the limits, their physical limits, through their art. And so becoming an image is a piece where <laughs> Um, the audience is crowded into a very dark room, and in fact, we tested this last night, and we're going to do it in the cast hall, which will be quite beautiful. Um, but 
they're they're crowded into a into a dark room and they come in and there is a two thousand pound monolith of clay. And um, castles. How high is that going to be so people can envision it? Yeah, because it sounds like a lot, but really clay is very dense. It so. is. It's maybe five to seven feet. I think it varies. It's pretty tall. And wide or width? Maybe three feet, four feet wide. Um, and like a really tall person. Yes, a really tall person. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it well, it's about castle's height, so maybe probably more like five feet. It has it's varied in different performances. It kind of depends how you make the mound. So we have to bring it in in blocks, and then the students are going to help castles build the mound. But um, Castles comes in and just proceeds to beat the crap out of this mound of clay. And the only way the audience sees the performance is through the flash of the photographer that's also moving around in a circle with Castles or against Castles, photographing this performance. So it's intense. We, when we tested it last night, we realized how intense that flash is. But the idea is archiving but not really archiving, because you're only archiving these images in a, in a flash moment. Right, you can't really capture the you whole thing. You can't really capture the whole thing. Or maybe with video? And there are some videos of the performance, and I recommend people really look at them on YouTube. Um, through Castle's website, you can get a good idea. But we're, we are going to be taking, taking the photographs um, from the performance, and I hope that we'll acquire the, the series of photographs that, that Castle's does in the cast hall. Because the way it's conceived now is that you will see, you see not only the crowd in some of those photographs, but you'll start to see those casts peeking out within the crowd, which make a really interesting comment on thinking about those idealized bodies mm -hmm. of Greek and Roman times and thinking about what these, what an ideal body is now. Um, and Castle's form is incredibly well sculpted. I mean... And this is going to be performance in the nude, I think you said? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes, so it, and it's on December second. I should mention, and uh, I think that tickets will go really quickly. They are up now. Um, we've had to limit the size of the performance because of it being in the cast hall. So um, and it's a one night. It's only a one night only performance. One yeah. night, one moment. But we will have an exhibition of the photographs. And Castles, um, when Castles visited here. Early in August, we did a we did a community meeting with with um, some some of the groups in town, and one of the things that Castles really became enamored with was, sadly, the history of transgender violence in Philadelphia, mm. and there is quite quite uh, quite a few occurrences. Mm -hmm. So Ca um, Castles has been looking through the police reports of these, and is thinking about somehow incorporating those with photographs from past performances into the installation in the Morris Gallery. Mm. And we're also um, getting into upstairs in the historic wing a bit. We're taking our Belvedere torso, the really classic Greek torso, and pairing it with um, an incredible video of a performance that Castles did called Theresius, which is, oh, I think it's a six to eight hour performance. I may be getting that wrong, but where um, Castles melts an ice sculpture of a classic male torso with, with their body only, Ooh. so pressing their body against that. So we'll have a video of that, and then we'll have really very recent work because it is currently being made um, in a residency in Syracuse right now. Um, but it's a bronze that Castles has been casting that resulting pounded clay 
as monuments to transgender violence. So there's a piece that's already been done in concrete that we're trying to show, and then we're also going to be trying this, trying to, sh we're going to be showing this bronze piece that Castles is doing right now. Is it the piece that's been, <clears throat> sorry, beaten down to the ground or it is. in process? It is. It's the it's the clay that's been bashed. So um, the idea, Castles really wants to find a permanent spot to put this piece, or at least semi-permanent, at a place to mark somewhere where transgender violence has happened as a monument to these to these to these people. Um, so we're working on that. Oh my! With the uh, public art. Well, Folks, we've been talking, and, and, and I hope I'm not speaking out of turn, but, you know, just in early conversations with, with Monument Lab, mm. which is a festival that's coming up, a really important thing that's happening in Philly next yes, fall. Yes, it is. So we're hoping. We'll see what happens. But it's um, something that I hope we can do. That's very cool. Yeah. Well, since this is, <clears throat> excuse me, bumping up against the idea of money and commissioning, yeah, I want to talk to you about the capital campaign right. progress that was announced the other day in the yeah. newspaper, and congratulations on that. Nice. And um, in the article that I read, it mentioned that you have an acquisition budget of about a million dollars <throat> a year, excuse me, uh, for contemporary art. Mm -hmm. Now, that seems like on the one hand, a lot of money, and on the other hand, nothing. Right. <laughs> so right. Uh, talk to me about what you think of when you think of acquisitions, um, money, right. other than I need more. Right, right. I, I feel, you know, I try to have, in comparisons with other museums that, I'm, that I've been at, this is, a, this is a great deal. So this is wonderful. And it's not only that, but it's, it's, it's a guarantee that we're going to continue buying contemporary, which is really, really exciting. And it's not quite a million dollars, um, which I think is, I, I don't know, I feel like I should mention. Um, but we're only now really getting to the point, you know, we had a, we've been trying to be really responsible with the money and think about the long term. Um, so we waited three years until we took a, you know, we took, we didn't take the full amount for the first three years in the endowment. So we're now, this is only our first year of having the full full amount to, to buy from. And so just a few weeks ago, in fact, I presented my um, collecting plan to the Contemporary Subcommittee of the Collections Committee, which is a, a they're, they're, they're a group that we've pulled together to really help advise us. And you know, it's a check and balance on what I'm doing. And um, we've been discussing our goals, and we've been discussing our strategies. And um, a few weeks ago, I presented certain areas of focus as well as a list of, of 50 artists that I'm really looking at in the next 50 years. It's, it's more of a roadmap and not a checklist because some things work out and some things don't. Um, but, but areas for us to focus on. And, and what I'm really thinking is, I think it's going to be rare for us to make huge purchase. We, we won't be making one large purchase a, purchase a year. I'm steering more towards making purchases in emerging artists. And when I say emerging artists, I don't necessarily mean just young artists. I mean artists for whom the market hasn't yet realized how incredible they are. Because um, that's something that I think um, the curators at PAFA, past curators, have done a really excellent job of, is looking at those under-recognized artists and collecting them before. You look at what Bob Casolino did with the, with the Chicago images, for example. I mean, we have an incredible collection of those artists, and now the market is really picking up. 
So we're lucky to have been ahead of that. Um, the other thing to think about with PAFA is that my job is limited in terms of acquisition purchases to 20 years. So I really only go back to 1996 at this point. So it's, um, you know, I can't make those big purchases necessarily from the 70s or 80s without the committee really saying that, you know, it, it takes a big discussion with the committee because they very much want me to be looking forward. Yeah, well, looking forward is going to be probably more cost effective than looking yes. back. I mean, work from the, from 20 years back has probably got an auction value of a right. million dollars right. per piece. Exactly. So, yeah. <laughs> So that's, that's where we're doing, and we're only, I feel like we're only, you know, just starting right now. Do you, do you foresee going to the art fairs and biennials and yeah, all that kind of? Yeah, I do, and, and we've, been doing, we've been doing that more since I started. Um, though, you know, I'm not, I'm not necessarily looking to buy things out of art fairs, but it's a, re it's a really good way to keep, you know, to see a lot Current. at once. Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I'm trying to bring, you know, I, I was in California for 10 years. So I have a, a, a big relationship with, with California artists. And I'm, when you're on the West Coast, I say this a lot, but when you're on the West Coast, you're always like, oh, you know, the West Coast art is not getting to the East Coast. And you really, and then I got here and I was, it's really not. So I feel like there's a lot of exciting things happening in, in L.A. and San Francisco. And I'm hoping that that's something that I can bring to Philly um, as well as just, you know, we, we had that great donation of Art by Women from Linda Lee Alter, which has drastically changed that collection and really makes for an exciting, exciting little threads for me to pull on because there's a lot of exciting feminist work being made now. Um, and so that's an area that I think you'll see us focusing on. Very cool. Yeah. Yeah, you've done work with, um, you had a show of Joan Brown. I did. Yeah. So she's a seminal figure she is. for women and women artists. She is. I don't know if there's anything of hers in the Linda Lee Alter There is, yeah. Because and we cool. actually have um, a, a promised gift of one of the best Joan Brown paintings I have ever seen. Hmm. So um, PAFA is a, is a really good spot for Joan, and I think it's, it's, we're lucky that we have those pieces. That's yeah. great. Yeah. So let's uh, switch now to an up-and-coming show that you have with Rena Banerjee, a yes. woman artist who mm -hmm. I don't know very much about her. So maybe yeah. you can tell us a little bit about her. Sure. So that's that's one of my my big shows that's coming up. Not until fall 2018. So it's but it's it feels like it's tomorrow. Um, but it'll be it'll be a big exhibition and book. And so um, Rena is an artist that she was born in Calcutta. But she's lived in, in the United States for many years. In fact, for a time, she was in, in North Philly living with her parents. Yeah. Really? Yeah. And so, um, but she's lived in New York for many, many years. And she makes incredible installations and sculptures, as well as, as, well as works on paper that are quite beautiful, um, from all sorts of materials. Feathers, um, shells, plastic, doll heads, monkeys, um, anything that you can imagine come together. And they really, um, they're beautiful and they're tactile and they're really engaging and colorful. Um, but they're also interesting comments on um, diaspora culture and this idea of being an outsider and an insider in the culture and this idea of where we are in the world now where um, 
you know, we can pull from many different things with, with, with idea of globalization and make these objects and, and make these identities really um, that can be made from all sorts of ideas from different cultures. And so um, I'm specifically looking at ideas of feminism in her work because it's something that's really important to her but that hasn't been discussed a lot. And that's everything from, you know, the way she uses textiles and feathers to the way she's thinking about color because pink plays a large role in her work. And, and still, I think we all have, you know, sort of a disdain for pink in some ways that, that, that goes back to really colonialism and ideas of, of, well, you know, why we all have white cubes or wear all black. Um, there's some sort of Western fear of color that's still playing out, I think. There's a book called Chromophobia. Yes. You know that book? Yes, I, I can't love that who book. I wrote it, but it's David really... Batchelor. Mm -hmm. Yep. And the other good one to read, um, it's not an easy read, but it's called What Color is the Sacred by Michael Tosig. And it's, it's, um, it really gets into some, some issues around that, too, that are quite, quite interesting. Um, and then, of course, you know, Rena came up, she actually was a chemist before she was um, an artist, but she went to, to, went to Yale for her MFA. And at the same time, you know, ideas of intersectionality were, were developing. Um, Donna Haraway's famous cyborg feminism book came out. Ideas came out. And so you start to think about how those ideas influenced Rena and the objects that she was making. And for me, this is coming out of um, past work that I've done with contemporary South Asian artists and thinking about this idea about how you how artists can ref how work and objects can reflect both local ideas and global ideas at the same time and how that affects how we read objects like, you know i i've been thinking a lot about how if if rena's objects were not attached to the name rena banerjee would we necessarily read them as being south asian you know you could you could look at these objects and find elements from africa or yeah monkeys right among other things exactly feathers. So, they sound a little shamanistic. Yeah, they really way. are. There's Female something shamanism. Yeah, there's something really metaphysical about them. But they also sound like a 3D explosion of an Indian miniature painting. Kind oh, of. interesting. That's a really cool idea. I've never thought about that. Yeah, absolutely. Because they're really complicated mm. in the narratives. Mm. I mean, there's really um, interesting narratives that play out in those pieces, and they're really imaginative. And that imaginative, and that's something that a viewer can bring too because you sort of wander around with your eye and imagine these worlds that she's creating. Is that going to be in the Morris Gallery? Or no, that... mm -mm, that's going to be in the large, the, the Fisher Brooks Gallery in the, the new Hamilton. building. Mm -hmm. So I'm hoping to do five of the big installations and then um, sort of constellations of sculptures and works on paper around. And then I have a, I have a dream of putting, she has a piece um, called Take Me, Take Me, Take Me to the Palace of Love. And it's a beautiful floating pink Taj Mahal. And I have a vision of putting that in the historic wing somewhere, which would just be such a strange contrast to the to the Frank Furness building, I think. So Oh, it sounds great. We'll so see. architecture. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, pink architecture. Yep. <laughs> so did you you're not from Philadelphia. Right. I know that you um, were at San Jose Museum of Art, like you said. Yes. And before that, Wichita State, mm -hmm. or maybe after that. I can't remember. Yep. What the, 
And you have an MFA in museum studies. I do. So did you, and a BA in art history and French from yes. the University of Nebraska. But don't ask me to speak French. So <laughs> no, embarrassing I now. <laughs> I won't speak French if you don't speak French. Promise. <laughs> so um, where were you born? I, I grew up in a tiny town in Missouri, north of Kansas City, so like 10,000 people. So it feels, um, most of the time it feels very unlikely that I'm doing what I'm doing and I'm, I'm here. Um, I really got into art more through museums than I did through, I don't know, you know, making art or anything like that, which is interesting. So I where think. was the museum in your town that well, you got imprinted on? No museums in my town, although I should acknowledge, you know, the, the little historical society that I, I still do, you know, have sort of charming memories of. Um, but the Nelson Atkins in Kansas City, you know, we were an hour and a half from there. Um, the Kemper Museum of Contemporary Art in Kansas City is, is excellent. So those were the museums that I went to as a child. And then, you know, my mom thankfully thought it was so important for me to travel. So from a really young age, she was taking me to Europe and we were going on tours and, and that was where we spent a lot of time in museums. And I just was enamored. And did your mom make, was she a museum professional or um, nope. an artist? Was not, an artist? no, not at all. I mean, she was an, an English teacher. So I did a lot of writing and maybe that's also, you know, writing is a big part of what I do. So I think that that has seeped into my consciousness somehow. Her English, um, has, her English teaching has been like sort of drummed into me. Um, have you ever made art, taken studio classes? I have. I, you know, as an undergrad, you take some studio classes. I'm not talented in any way, shape, or form. Um, I'm much more engaged with the writing and the, but it is, it was, I mean, really good for me to take those studio courses because you realize how, I mean, it is extremely difficult to be an artist. It's not easy to do what, what, what they're doing. And anybody that gets in front of something and says, I could do that, I mean, they should really try. Well, my four-year-old can do that. Right. Looking at abstract art. They should really try because it's not, it's not that easy. Well, curatorial practice is yeah. can be quite creative. Yeah, absolutely. So it sounds like you're getting that part of your brain massaged a little bit. Absolutely. I think, you know, when you're in the gallery and there's those installations and you're collaborating with an artist, that's it's a really it's a really creative moment and really exciting. Mm -hmm. It is. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that's the end of my questions for now, unless Great. you want to get into the Freudian aspect of why you're doing what you're doing. I, you know, I don't know. <laughs> thank you so much, Jody, oh, thank for you. talking with us. Yeah, it was really fun. Cool.